Greetings, Princeps, and welcome to the 37th episode of the God Engine Cast, a weekly podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus war game produced by Games Workshop. In this week's show, we are going to discuss the Legio Vulpa, the Deathstalkers. Attention Princeps, the God Engine cast needs your help. First up, as always, if you can rate and review this show on your podcasting app of choice, you will have my thanks as it helps others find the show easier. Additionally, I currently have a survey up to help me improve the show for next season. This questionnaire asks for feedback about past episodes and asks opinions on future topics. The link to this show can be found on my social medias and in the show notes for this show. Please go on it and review it. The survey will be running for the next month or so as I decide what I'm going to be doing next year. Okay, with all that said, let's get on with the show. Okay, Games Workshop news for a second. They finally released the New Knights, the Magnara and Strix. They're available for Forge Worlds as I'm recording this, and they cost $50 per pair. At least when you buy the pair, you are getting two of the same, so it's it's okay. I, I don't know how to feel about this. I'm not going to do a giant rant about the price. They are what they are. $50 is a lot. They are about the same price as a Warhound Titan, maybe a little less. But truth be told, I actually don't like the model. Uh, I'm not going to frame saying, oh, these models look great. They don't. I was not a huge fan of their 32mm 40k variants. These just look... I don't know. There's something off about them. I kind of like the Little Knights, the Questorus Knights. But I don't know. I haven't... I need to look at these models a lot more to decide what about them is the problem. Maybe it's the resin sculpt that they just aren't crisp like the plastic models are now it's like a softness to the edges and it just I, I wait to see some other people paint them maybe that will help they just look they just look lower quality than I was expecting yeah a little bit interesting um, I know I've become very sensitive to that sort of stuff these days I've been watching a lot of 3D printing and Especially as I'm getting into my orcs, I've been looking at a lot of third-party models. And I usually criticise third-party models for having this sort of look that isn't quite sharp. Sharp's the good word for it. They're just not quite as visually catching as the Games Workshop sculpts. Games Workshop sculpts are usually higher quality, and you can usually tell that there were something. And these four knights or two knights, they're missing something, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It's just something... Something not quite right about them. But there's a lot of love for them in the community. I've seen a lot of people excited they're out there. I haven't even looked at the rules, to be honest, because it's been another one of those weeks. Um, and I will, and I'll when I find the, the rules for them, I will give them a quick review. But, um, yeah, we'll move on, I suppose. I'm probably going to pick them up eventually, so I've got a whole collection. I just Something about them doesn't sit quite right with me. Community questions. I don't have any at the moment. I'd like some more. I enjoy doing them. So if you've got any questions you want to ask me, please email me or contact me through Facebook or Instagram. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation about my friend Dustin and his untimely death and what we're doing to go about rebuilding our community. I want to thank those who've reached out and made donations. It was very appreciated. In that collection of individuals reached out was a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Kralt. And I had a conversation with him about his event he runs up in Canada, uh, the Toshia Cavers event, and how it was cancelled and how he's raising money for charity as well. And uh, I said I would throw a link out there so people could go and buy some swag from the event that never ran, uh, inadvertently giving money to charity, because that's his plan. Um, so take a look at the link and uh, reach out to him. (laughs) 
Okay, today's show is going to focus on the Legio Volpa. This is going to be part one of my coverage of the Deathstalkers Legion. Part two should be next week, where I am going to sit down in conversation with a notable collector of Legio Volpa and discuss their take on the Legio. This week I'm going to do my usual four-part review, where I sit down and review their lore, then their rules, then a hobby side of things, and then a conversation about how I would collect them. But that all said, there is something that needs to be discussed right now, right at the top. Throughout the Black Library books, the Legio Volpa are cast as the arch-traitors, even more so than Legio Mortis. Legio Mortis characters in many of the books are conflicted. The Legio Volpa individuals fall hard to chaos and usually end up assigned to some demonic dark pact, or just show up as a corrupted engine. There is more to the Legio Volpa than their portrayal in the books. We can see that in other reference material here and there. And even when we take a step back and look at what we could possibly be done with the Legio, there are many avenues to collect. As such, I am going to try and avoid leaning too hard into these guys are the Cornate Titan Legion. In many ways they are. They have a lot of rules that very lean that way, and they look very similar to Cornate forces we see in all of the other Games Workshop games. But there is more of them to them than that, and I'm not going to exclude areas of the hobby by ignoring it. As I go through the lore, I will talk about the level of corruption the Legio is experiencing. And when I get to the hobby side, we will talk pretty hard about different ways you can collect the Force. I've seen this sort of conversation derail other reviews, either from outside forces in comments or actually internally in discussion. So I'm just going to put this all out here now. That's my point of view. I'm going to discuss it as we go. But I'm not going to presume that they are Quinnate. I think that's the simplest way forward. And yeah, with all that said, let's just get on with law. So the history and the law of the Legio is fairly in-depth. Um, for a Titan Legion that hasn't had a write-up in a black book, that is to be said. We get the information from Legio Volpa from a number of sources. Primarily, at this point, is the Black Library. They appear in a number of books. The primary book they are in is Titan Death by Guy Haley. Here we see a pretty in-depth discussion of the Legio, with several point-of-view characters being members of the Legio. In addition, the Legio have cameo appearances in Vengeful Spirit, Book 4 of the Siege of Terror series, and the Mechanicum. Outside of the Black Library books, they have a few appearances in 40k. There are references to them in several of the Chaos Codexes throughout the year, but the information applied to that obviously has to be viewed through the lens of 40k. In addition, they appear in both the Duma Molech and the Titan Death books. The Titan Death books contain their rules and a much more deeper dive into their lore. Though, it has to be said at this point, there are discrepancies between the Titan Death source book and the Titan Death Black, um, Black Library book. In the Black Library book, the Legio Volpa play a much more dominant role in the actual campaign, with a lot of the battles then described in the source book being more focused on the Legio Mortis. There are many reasons to presume this. This is all about unreliable narrators throughout the entire Games Workshop product, and I'm not going to get into too much. I'm going to focus on the stories that put the Legio Volpe in the centre stage. So, that's what I'm going to do from here. Um, now, before the recreation of the Horus Heresy and the last 10, 15 years. Uh, the Legio Volpa did have a history that started way back in the original Game of Titanicus in the 80s. Back then, they were a Titan Legion associated with the Death Guard with a very different colour scheme. And I think we can probably rule out any bits of lore from back then as a offshoot and probably been retconned out of existence. So I'm just going to focus on the source material I've just mentioned. Um, plus a few strands. I'm going to follow names and go here and there to tie a few things up. There was a couple of mentions of them on Twitch channels, 
with some of the writers dropping nuggets of information that haven't been confirmed. Um, and I'm going to touch on those as well because they add some depth. Anyway, let's move on. So the origins of the Legio Vulpa are unclear. We know they were primarily based on Mars. But as the Great Crusade possessed, the bulk of the Legio moved off it and seemed to take up residence on another forge world. As I just mentioned a minute ago, uh, we have a bit of lore generated from an unconventional source there. On the Twitch stream that discusses the Legio Vulpa, one of the writers involved in writing the lore for the Legio Vulpa mentioned it was the forge world Anvilus, which they called home. Now this is interesting, because that's the forge world that produces the Dreadclaw drop pod, um, which is somehow fitting for the Legion, and um, I'm going to take it as canon, and uh, hope others do as well. A lot of information is known about the culture of the Legio Vulpa. They were a Legio obsessed with the honour of battle, particularly that in close quarters. And not so much like the honour of Legio Graphonicus. They didn't care about the fight, they cared about the end result, the victory. And they thought the best victory won was the one fought close, but in close quarters. Um, they wanted to see the eyes of their foe, is the best way to describe it. Um, they had a streak of cruelty, or what others saw as cruelty, but could be seen as just ruthless efficiency. Um, they didn't care about other people or other emotions. Uh, if something needed to be done to achieve the result quickly, they would do it. In many ways, you can look at the style of warfare the Legio Vulpa wanted to engage in and compare it to perhaps the Dark Angels. They would, If you deployed the Legio Vulpa to battle, you were going to deploy them to win. And it didn't really matter what techniques were employed. They were going to achieve victory. And you would pick up the pieces when they were done. They had a pretty solid loyalty, despite all that. Um, they brought worlds to compliance and uh, had a reputation of being fearsome and deadly opponents for the enemies of the Emperor. This didn't survive into the Horus Heresy, where they quickly sided with the Warmaster. Mostly, I think, due to the fact, and this is my personal opinion, because of their desire for close quarters and honour on the battlefield. The Emperor shunned that when he went back to Terra. And you could see a culture that prides themselves on being in the centre of the fight, seeing the Emperor's desertion as, well, a desertion, and uh, something that would have rankled them. And these aren't people who wear their emotions behind a steely mask. No, you hear it when they're upset. There's no politeness. It's a very direct society. Um, and none of those words are negative. I mean, they have negative connotations, but I want to paint a picture at this point that they aren't a horrible people. I mean, they are, but they're not. There are plenty of examples of this sort of culture on forces that became loyal to the Imperium. As I said, the Dark Angels are a great example, but there are others. In fact, so many of these tropes and ideas are recreated across many forces throughout the entirety of the expanded 40, 000, Warhammer 40,000 universe. There's nothing, there's nothing excitingly original. It's good, solid, brim dark. And that's good. I like it. Um, anyway, so I'm going to move on to discuss the rest of the lore by actually reviewing each in particular crusade or moment in time of the Legio as they are a Legio that does change, as I've sort of hinted at already. And I want to talk through what they were doing at certain points and uh, what changes was going on with the Legio. So the first engagement we really see the Legio Vulpa in is the compliance of Dendrogicta. It is a compliance action during the Great Crusade, and in particular, the Siege of Bisphorex. We don't know a great deal of the position of this world, or at least I can't remember it, I'm didn't write it down my notes. Um, but on this world, the city of Bifrex had been holding the forces of the Imperium back for a while, and a number of Titan legions had been deployed to break the city um, and to push for compliance on the world. And two legios were deployed, the Legio Solaria and the Legio Volpa, and they did just that. And the point we really get 
information. A couple of battles and engagements have been won, and the city are pushing for some form of surrender. Negotiations are going to go on. But the Legio Volpa guys worry. They worry the entire negotiation is some sort of scam, and we're gonna, there's going to be betrayal and reinforcements arrival or something, and the city will get away from them, and they'll have to go back to fight, and they'll be in a weak position. So rather than waste an opportunity, they would just right then and there wipe the city off the map and destroy it. And they did. There was no messing around. Compliance was achieved through brutal efficiency. Uh, volcano cannons on tower blocks, venting plasma on civilians, the works. Yeah, pretty horrific stuff. But at this point, I'll put a flag in it. It was pretty horrific for the 31st millennium. In retrospect, when you look at what was going on and think about what happens to worlds in the 41st millennium, or 42nd millennium, wherever 40k is now, yeah, it's standard grimdark uh, operations. Um, so maybe the Legio Vulpa just knew the score and knew what had to be done. Or, more correctly, Legio Solari was right, and this isn't the way to really build an empire. I mean, especially not one the Emperor wanted built correctly. So there's that. But even the horrific war crimes that Legio Vulpa were committing were done for the Imperium. They were doing it because of their loyalty, and they wanted to do it to secure the Empire. They weren't doing it because they just felt like it, because they wanted to enjoy the killing. And if they did, that was neither here or there. It was about the Emperor. Okay. So that's the first major engagement we have really any, any information on, or any depth. We know they had a reputation for this sort of stuff throughout the Great Crusade. They never came out to play nicely. Um, and this is a good example of it. So the next engagement we really have knowledge of is the events on the Red Planet during the Schism of Mars. As tensions ratcheted up on Mars through the initial heresy, when things were moving in the shadows before Estevan burnt, the Death Stalkers and the Death Bolts 1 were locked in a pretty fierce argument over territorial disputes. Now back in... Back before the Heresy, all the Titan Legions that were based on Mars had areas of Mars that were theirs. Yang territory. The Princepsa line, for example, div divided the Legio Tempestus from the Legio Mortis. And that line, Titans didn't cross. And the same played out between the Legio on an area and the Legio Volpa. They did not get on. They had many unresolved conflicts from before uh, unification. And the Legio Volpa were looking at ways to get their territory back, or at least settle the score. So once the fabricator general turned from the emperor and started looking for allies, he quickly found willing gears on the princeps of the Legio Volpa, who were based on Mars. And one of the opening attacks of the schism was the Legio Volpa attacking Death Bolt's uh, fortifications and fortresses on Mars. A number of devastating attacks came out of nowhere, and Legio Honorarium lost at least 19 engines and were for forced out of their holdings. Uh, presumably into an on-running campaign that lasts the remainder of the heresy. Um, after that, our information about the conflict between the two Legios gets a little sketchy, as does all information about Mars after the evacuation of the Imperium's Fabricator General. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one, because this is the point of betrayal for the Legio in many ways. They sided with the Fabricator General. Um, they didn't side with the War Master in this case. And they sided with him over material gain. This wasn't... They didn't join the Fabricator General to be on... To join the Dark Powers to gain access to forbidden technology. No, they did it because they just didn't look the, like the look of the guys over there and wanted an excuse to fight them. Um, which itself is a thing. Um, but it's not also surprising. Um... I think the story could have been very easily the other way round for the Legio Volpa. Uh, 
had Mars gone to Legion Aerium and tried to sway them against Volpa, maybe the Legio Volpa on Mars would have been like the Legio Tempestus and ended up fighting a long rearguard. Either way, they went chaotic. That all said, the next place we have confirmation of deployment of Legio forces is to a battle which firmly entrenches their loyalty. That is the Istavan Three atrocity. Although only referenced in passing, a line here and a line there in certain books, we know Legio Volpa Titans were deployed. We know Legio Volpa Titans were destroyed during the purge, or at least their crews were. And after Legio Vol after Istavan Three, Legio Volpa were a Legio loyal to the Warmaster alongside Legio Invector and Legio Mortis. They were the new holy trinity of the Warmaster's Titan Legions, and like many of the Titan Legions, this does not represent all their forces, so perhaps individual maniples were not caught by the schism. At this point, the predominant force of the Legio Volpa were loyal to the Warmaster, or loyal to the um, traitorous fabricated general on Mars. There'd been no large group of them going off to join the force of the Emperor. But as I said, uh, with all forces associated through the Istaban Three atrocity, there is a solid scope to imagine some survivors, some who weren't present at Istaban Three, some on other deployments, who lost friends and are now angered at the rest of their Legio. Though most of them are more likely keeping black shields than they are Emperor um, supporting. But plenty of space and narrative there. Okay, moving on. So then we get to the Doom of Molech. Doom of Molech is a very interesting battle. You don't really see much from the... None of our sources really agree to what exactly the Legio Volpa were doing there. We know they were part of the Grand War House, one of the three core Titan Legions, and they fought in all the engagements with everyone else. Uh, they were present when Divine betrayed... Legio Crucius, and they were there in the other fights as well. And they get references here and there in the individual stories in the Black Library books and in uh, the Titanicus source book. But there's no real great moment of brilliant cinematic action from Legio Volta. They were present. Which is fine. But it's worth talking about this section because we know that in the next book, the Titan Death Black Library book, the dark mechanics start really corrupting them. And we're now quite a ways from the Istavan atrocity. So the Titans at this point are loyal Warmaster to a point. They have not succumbed to the pull of chaos. And in many ways, this is the archetypal Horus Heresy battle group. Um, Titan Death is like the prequel to the Siege of Terror. We're on the eve of the siege. And the siege is a very different beast. In the siege, the forces of the Warmaster are much closer to that of the Chaotic Astartes than they are of the Great Crusader Astartes. And I think that's true of the Titans as well. This is the point, so Moloch, right there in the centre of the heresy, is the point of your standard Titan battle group. Which we will come back to later. But I wanted to plant this flag firmly in the ground so I've got a reference point to talk about it. Things change as we move to the next uh, primary engagement. So we'll talk about that now. So then the next major conflict we know the Legio Volpa involved in is perhaps the most well understood of the conflicts. The Battle of the Beta Garmin Sector, the Titan Death. Now this is covered in two really detailed source books. The first is the Adeptus Titanicus source book, Titan Death, which is where we actually get the rules for Legio Volpa and is the focus for the game on it. We also have the supporting novel, Titan Death, by Guy Haley. It's the novel, which is where we're going to get most of our information on Legio Volpa, not the Titan Death book. In the Titan Death source book, Legio Mortis are the primary Legio talked about. Their rules were also found in this book, and they clearly were the heroes, protagonists, the main protagonists of the book. Um, 
The Legio Volpa was pushed into much more of a supporting role than mentioned offhanded here and there, um, not in the same way that the Titan Death Core book was. I know I talked to Jackie next week about this split, and I'll really late leave my thoughts to that conversation there. Well, what I'm going to say is I think this is a good point to really stop and take a look at what the Titan Legion is at this point. We know the Titan Legion is basically gutted. The Princeps have become callous, horrible people. Their efficiency has been ripped away to just horrendous cruelty. And they're finally led down a dark path to corruption. Uh, several of their most notable Princeps are bound into, war uh, emperor, into emperor, Warlord Titans, to become the first Bane Lords, which are a form of corrupted Titan. Hopefully we'll see rules and models for eventually. Um, but this occurs at the very end of the war uh, in Titan Death. It's not an early thing uh, feature. But throughout the entire campaign, the malign influence of Chaos finally gets its teeth into the Legion. And this is the point of their damnation. At the end of the conflict in the Beta Garmin section, the Legio has been corrupted, or the, a group of Titans present during this fight has been corrupted. Again, it's never clear if there are other forces of the Legio Volpa outside. I mean, there's supposedly stuff still on Mars. And they won't be corrupted because they have to have the same contact with the Warmaster and his um, allies. Interesting. So at this point, the nobility has been stripped away from them, and there's a great bit of lore at this point in one of the chapters of Titan Death, where he's commenting that he's not even going to try and learn the names of his new moderate. Um, they aren't important anymore. Um, it's all about his personal glory. And, yeah, it's very different from other Titan Legions we get that point of view from. That's kind of cool. Uh, has a slightly over-the-top moustache twirling going on, but... Uh... I think it has a place in the overtop caricature of titanic battles that we engage in. Um, anyway, so throughout the Titan Death, they lose a lot of engines. They fight in the actual battle that is known as Titan Death and several of the other conflicts. Um, but they survive and they ride off to terror with the Warmaster. So then we get to the last place we know they have an appearance. And I say we know, uh, because I haven't fully experienced this part of the law myself. Um, Legio Vulpa are noted as appearing in the fourth book of the Siege of Terrorists series, where they fight at the Battle of Gorgonbar and face off against Sanguinius himself. Sadly, that's in a chapter of the book I haven't got to yet. I'm finding book four to be a bit of a slog. I'd almost finished it, but I'd zoned out and misperceptions of it and I've just not got around to reading it again. I had hoped to finish reading it by the time I did this review but yeah that's not going to happen. Um, so what I do I'll put a little note in, may even go back and revise this section of the podcast but um, I'm expecting at this point to see pretty corrupted titans that's what the Siege of Terror is all about and the other titans I've experienced so far in the Siege of Terror books have shown that level of corruption but as I said, so are all of the traitor forces. And I doubt we'll get any point of view shots from the individual Legion, uh, presuming the end of Titan Death will be the last point of view shot from a Legion Volpa Princeps we will get. So that's the history of the Titan Legion. A fall from a place of semi-nobility to a bunch of savages doing packs with dark gods. From the outside, it perhaps doesn't look like that large of a fall. But I believe there was actually quite a road. They had an honour code, and that was slowly eroded. There is a structure that just isn't present at the end of the story. They don't... Those last couple of scenes in Titan Death, the individual princeps are becoming shells of people. And... Much closer to that, what I imagine Chaos Space means to be. Selfish. Looking out for themselves and personal glory. Um, the first fights we have with them, they are still committing horrendous acts of atrocity. But they're doing it for others. By the end, they're doing it because they want to. 
Uh, it's a subtle change. And it's not like the most grandest of stories, but there is a story. Um, we'll move on to discuss the rules, I think. Okay, let's start talking about the rules of Leisure Volpa. Now, first up, in summary, they have one Legion trait, one Pacific stratagem, and two pieces of war gear. Now, I will say at this point, that would normally be a warning sign for me. A Legion with only one trait is generally on the lower tier. I don't think that is quite the case this time, as the stratagems and pieces of war gear add some teeth to the Legion. But because they only have one trait, it does make things a little one-dimensional. So we'll go and look at that right now, and we'll come back to the actual makeup of the rules once we get through the review. The Legio trait is called Honor and Blood. The Legio Volper value the honor of close quarters battle, where they can see the eyes of their foes, or in the case of Titanic warfare, their armored heads, and feel the concussive forces as their weapons smash into them. On the table, it means if you're within three inches of an enemy titan, you get plus one to your weapon skill and minus one to your ballistic skill. This is actually not a bad trait. The plus one to hit with melee weapons, effectively, is really, really useful. Um, there is a small rules interaction that we need to just quickly focus on. You gain the plus one weapon skill at three inches. This is not close quarters range. You're still outside Void Shield range, and you aren't switching your attacks to Ballistic Skill. Which means there is a one-inch band around every Titan where Legio Volta are more inaccurate. This is really interesting. Obviously, it's the representative of the fact they're close enough to see the rise of their opponent, and they just want to get in that little bit closer. Um, but it leads to some very odd gameplay, and it's something you need to be aware of. And I'm going to raise it now. I'm not really going to come back to it a huge amount, because it's hard to plan for or to plan against an opponent. It's just a thing that's there. Anyway, the plus one to hit is really kind of powerful. The weapon skill of most titans is significantly lower than their ballistic skill. On the Reaver and Warhound, there's only one difference. But on the Warlord, you're looking at a split of two. So this brings it down to requiring a 4 plus for a smash attack. When you then put in the additional plus 2 for your power claw, you're then hitting on a 2 plus. But that is also the other side of the coin. This trait isn't very useful for a titan with a melee weapon. If you've got your reaver with your dual power fists or whatever, close combat weapons, power fist, chain fist, they're already getting a plus 2 to hit. So their weapon skill of 4+, plus doesn't matter, they're going to be hitting on 2s anyway, and you can't hit on 1s. So maybe it helps if you're in a position where the enemy's giving themselves a minus to hit. That's a pretty rare occurrence. So actually, you're getting this plus 1 to hit really only helps smash attacks. Which is an interesting place to be. Um... Particularly as I see a lot of people with Legio Volpa thinking of Powerfist and Power Claws. Um, but that's... Yeah. Yeah. It's just a thing to bear in mind. Anyway, we'll move on and we'll come back and start looking at the whole synergy here in a minute. So then we move on to the Legio Pacific Stratagem, No Pity for the Vanquished. It's a one-point stratagem and its description reads, A killing fury is common for many Titan Princeps. The thrill of a felled foe, echoed by a raging machine spirit, feeding back through the MIU. Deathstalker's princeps often give into this battle madness, though, riding the waves of exhilaration and letting their attacks become almost instinctive. What this means is that you can use the stratagem to immediately make another attack after making an engine kill. It has to be done by the weapon that made the kill, and it will... It is an entirely separate attack, so it will generate heat if it generates heat when fired, or swung, or whatever. 
the target has to be within 12 inches of the previous engine kill as well. So 12 inches is a long way, so you've got a lot of leeway with that. And you've got to be able to target and make all the usual, usual rules. Now, for a one-point stratagem, this is really, really good. Um, it's basically giving you a quasi-split fire with some restrictions. Uh, there are lots of ins and outs about the exact way to use this stratagem. But it really does work best when being used by a ranged weapon. Uh, using close combat is rather restrictive because your maximum range of your fists is two inches. Whereas, you know, your volcano cannon on your war warlord probably could blow up several titans really close together. Um, if you're able to take out perhaps a warhound in a, in a little pack, and they've already stripped both shields, and you've now critically injured the other warhound, that second volcanic cannon shot could be another engine kill. Um, this is a really powerful little stratagem. Um, yeah. Okay, let's move on to their war gear. Next up is their first piece of war gear, the Plasma Gargoyle. Few aspects of the Titan cannot be weaponized, and the Deathstalkers often fit their plasma vents with dispersion nodules shaped in the visage of leering gargoyles to spray the discharged scalding plasma over a wider area as possible. What this means is for 15 points per Titan, whenever you vent plasma, any unit, friend or foe, within 3 inches takes a strength 3 hit plus strength equals the number of levels of heat that you've just vented. So if you vent 3 heat, you'd be doing strength 6 to hit to everyone within 3 inches of your titan. Yeah. This is really interesting, and on paper it sounds awesome. Uh, you're going to be wanting to get close up anyway, so you know. You're going to be throwing free hits out there. The problem is, is once you start thinking through the mechanics of it, it becomes a little lackluster. On a Warlord, you may be lucky enough to be able to vent 3 heat and do something else. So maybe you can get strength 6. If you're, you're definitely going to... Well, you may be occasionally able to get strength 7. But you've got to have 4 heat to begin with, and then you've got to push all your reactor dice to drain all 4 levels of heat. And you can't do it in 2 rounds, so an emergency repair order followed by a standard repair is still only going to be 2 rounds of draining heat. Generally, people drop heat in small little amounts over multiple repairs when they've got a lot of heat. So... Yeah, a Warhound's really only ever going to be able to do a strength 5 hit, unless if you dedicate all your repair dice to venting heat, and you're able to vent all the heat. Um, and it's friend or foe. So, yeah. I don't know. I think this really needs to be a stratagem. Um, for 15 points, you're looking at an effect that's really not going to be that useful. And 15 points is not a small amount of points in the greater scheme of things. Um, especially if you're going to put it on every one of your Titans, which you, yeah. So perhaps, you know, a two-point stratagem that allows you to do this, or a one-point stratagem that you can take multiple times that allows you to do this, would be better. Um, so one-point stratagem means that you'd be able to do strength five plus heat that you drain once per game or twice per game would be not bad. Um, yeah. I just, yeah. I will cover this more in the future. Then we move to the final piece of war gear, Disruption Emitters. The Deathstalkers quickly developed a taste for close combat during the Horus Heresy. It's not the natural environment for many Titans, and the Legion made modifications to their war machines, fixing disruption fields to armor plates and limbs to enhance the destructive potential of close encounters. What this means is for 30 points, a Titan can be fitted with Disruption Emitters, and that adds plus 2 strength to any weapons with the melee trait, and it counts its scale as too high up when making smash attacks, which directly goes on to mean that smash attacks get plus two strength. Okay, so in my opinion, a smash attack only will gain plus two strength. I do not think smash attacks are a weapon. I know it's been talked about a lot on the web, and particularly Chris on Tabletop Standard has done a pretty good YouTube video explaining his side of the argument, where he states that um, smash attacks are weapons. And I see where he's coming from. The problem is he makes several 
I don't want to say logical jumps, but he interprets the tea leaves a certain way and I always go the other way. Um, I'm pretty sure that the intent of the game was that smash attacks were something different. They never called a weapon. It's always a smash attack. It's not a weapon attack. Um, and things like this, where it calls out smash attacks is separate from a weapon, makes it seem to me pretty clear that a smash attack is something unique. Um, we desperately need clarification on this point, uh, particularly for this one upgrade. I mean, this one upgrade is where it matters, but I think it has other small issues, like can you make a smash attack with an order? As in, can you first fire and do a smash attack? Can you split fire and do a smash attack? Or is smash the only order you can initiate smash attacks through is the charge order, which is how I believe it is. Um, I personally believe the smash attack is an attack of last resort done when you're going into close combat. Um, so if you're in a position in a Titan, you're in close combat, with, you're at base base contact with someone, you want to smash them, you just issue a zero inch charge move. But yeah i'm gonna leave that there and we'll talk about it in further future episodes if people really want me to dig down on it but i just want to put that here in the ground as i'm talking about this particular rules and attraction now anyway moving on despite all that i think plus two strength on smash attacks and on weapons is really really good and in fact i think it's better on the smash attack than it is on a weapon the plus two strength on a smash attack basically guarantees that most of the smash attacks you're going to do are going to be really scary. Smash attack is scale plus one anyway. So you're looking at plus three on any scale. Which means that, you know, your Reaver Titan is hitting at strength 11. Your Warhound at strength 10. These are not small numbers and will do massive amounts of damage to the enemy. And well worth the plus 30 points per Titan. In fact, it unlocks a greater strategy potential, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, I think something becomes very apparent when you start looking at the rules about how you can use this Titan Legion. Before I do that, I just want to go through the personal traits, and then we'll loop around to my thoughts on strategies. So we're going to the Princeps traits, and these are actually pretty interesting. The first Princeps trait is called Razor Tongue. Uh, the Princeps Senioris, in this case, has a reputation of being very good at eviscerating his opponents with words. So he jumps on the box and starts yelling at a particular enemy titan. So you pick an enemy titan within 24 of your princeps, and they suffer minus two to their command check. Which is pretty good, actually. I mean, minus two is not a small amount on the command dice. And theoretically, you could have multiple princeps in a list with multiple uses of razor tongue. So you could get multiple... Vulper Princeps picking on one unfortunate Titan, giving them a minus four, which suddenly is about half the chance of you passing. You can start critically messing up the enemy's plans by just yelling at them, which is really nice. Next up is the trait Bloodied but Unbroken. Uh, for each critical point of damage the Princeps Senioris's Titan has taken, you gain plus one strength on melee attacks and smash attacks to a maximum of three. Which means, if, for example, you've taken a critical to the body, one to the legs, one to the head, you're going to be swinging with plus three strength on top of whatever else you've got. If you've taken disruption emitters, your poor little warhound is swinging at strength 13, which is crazy. Um, you happen to be in the flank of an enemy, and you're basically swinging with a strength 14 weapon, um, which is going to really mess up most people's days. Um... Yeah. And the final trait is called Cruel. Um, this one's really fun. Um, basically, it means when you're attacking units with a scale of 5 or lower, the strength of your hits go up by 2. Which is incredible in many ways, because obviously things of that small scale are knights and they pack iron shields. So by increasing the strength of the shot by 2, you're reducing an enemy shield save dramatically. Any weapon lower than strength 8, suddenly has a real good chance of just ignoring shields. Um, there's not much more to say about that. It's just really fun. Um, I think it's one of the best personal traits, but they don't have a bad one. It depends who you're fighting against. I personally think Razor Tongue is probably the one I would go for the most. Um, there's a lot of play there in really hurting an enemy's plans by reducing their 
command characteristics. I've usually been a bit iffy on command characteristic lowering, but this is such a precision strike and you've got such a long range on it that you're going to really be able to just directly limit an enemy's plans. And I really like that. So, now we've finished going over the traits, I'm going to take a few moments to talk about just general Vulpa strategy. I'm going to get into this a lot more with Jackie next week, but yeah. For example, your Mega Bolter will now have a plus two effectively in close combat, which makes it as good as... I think, oddly, the best way to run Legio Vulpa is with disruption emitters and as many guns as you can carry, and stay away from the blast weapon. You're going to be sit setting out to make Titans that can hit hard with the disruption emitters and follow it up with targeted attacks with their gun. You want guns that give you pluses to hit at short range. The plus one hit, the hit because of your increased weapon skill, is really good for the gun. It doesn't do as much as it would on a close combat weapon or a melee trait weapon, as they all come pretty much stock with a plus two to hit anyway. But it's going to really help those guns that don't have any additional modifiers to accuracy. Chain Fist for hitting, apart from the fact you can't make targeted attacks. Um, but you can instantly be hitting on force, which is fine for a gun with that many shots. I think also by doing that, pushing to that gunboat mentality, you give your opponent less options to work around you. Running a lot of close combat weaponry piles on the Legio Vulpa traits, making it that you've just got to get in close, and the enemy can just do what they want by keeping away from you. By just having to get within that close range band or get, just getting close, just puts a lot of pressure on your opponent. And a 12 inch charge from a disruption emitting warhound is really scary. Uh, you know, 4 plus D3 strength, 10 hits to a targeted location, followed up with some really accurate uh, gunfire. No, no, it's going to finish you off real quick. Um, and then, you know, then the nobody for the Vanquish goes off, so. That Warhound runs across the table, smashes into your uh, Reaver, cores out its base, its uh, body, shoots you up with a targeted attack from its Vulcan uh, Megabolter, taking you out. It survives the explosion, or whatever, you fall over, and it spins around or shoots up the Titan behind it with a Vulcan Megabolter, stripping its shields, then allowing the rest of the battle group to shoot up that Titan. Um, yeah. It's just a very effective, very forceful style of play, and that's what you need to lean into with these rules. Now there are downsides. They do only have the one trait, and the trait is lukewarm, if I'm going to be honest. By itself, it is very meh. Plus one to hit within two inches of an enemy titan is something you would want to see in addition to some other rules or other traits in any other legion. You compare this with, say, the Legio Paragicus, where they get plus one to hit at long range, because, um, yeah. I I think the trait isn't that great. And in fact, it comes with a downside, which is even worse when you've only got the one actual full trait. Legio trait is the one thing you're going to get every game that you're not going to have to pay points for. It's not going to cost you anything. So when you've got a weak one of those, you've always got a weak building block. The Legio Vulpa are saved by the Disruption Emitters. They are very powerful and change the nature of Titanic Warfare, which is really good. And especially when combined with the trait, it makes something really useful. And I think you've got to lean into that. You can do anything else you want with this Titan Legion, but if you lean away from the disruption emitters and trying to get within those two inches, you're losing any bonus you get. So there's that. Well, I'm going to move on to the hobbying side now. I'm going to come back to tactics and talk about it a lot more next week. So, we'll see where we go from that. Okay, so then we move to the hobby and collecting part of the show. I'm going to start talking about collecting. We'll move on to the different styles of force you can collect here in a minute. The Legio Vulpa are a easy Legio to paint, but they have many places you can make pretty advanced looking models using advanced techniques. So let's start with the basics. The basic Legio colour scheme is a metallic titan body, as always, with a series of armour plates, 
that are a mixture of red and purple with a bone trim. Really easy, friendly colours to paint. Um, reds and bones go together so well, as does purple and bone. I was painting this Titan myself and I was wanting to do it quickly and perhaps talk people through the easy steps of miniature painting. Uh, the central body done normal way, spray, metallic, wash, dry brush, blah, blah, blah. The actual body, I would, the plates, I would spray a bone. I would hit them with some flesh inks. Um, depends exactly what range you're using, but I quite like Reichland fire shade, flesh shade, just to give the bones a bit of texture. At which point I would then go and colour in the plates and build up the tones by going in with some reds. Uh, the occasional plate I'd pick out to build up purple tones. Start with the dark red, it would go over the bone really easily, and then work your way up, uh, slowly highlighting to a lighter red. Nice and simple, uh, and effective. And they'll go together and you'll look like you've got some Legion of Ulpa Titans, and no one will really look the other way thinking you've got a bad paint scheme, will look pretty popping on the table. That said, you can go to town with a Legion of Ulpa. The actual art plates of the Forgeful books show the reds actually and purples to be of more of a meaty texture. In fact, that's how they describe this. It looks like they're made of fresh meat, which really allows you to do some really fun marbling techniques. Uh, there are numerous ways to get a good marbling texture, and I'm not going to go and start describing them now, as they usually require pictures of baby wipes and stuff. And I think any hobbyist who's looking for a challenge, it's right up the, a good alley. Uh, it'd be an unusual thing to do marbling with. I know I spoke about marbling on other panels using the standard white marbling, but the red and black marbling real nice. Now, obviously, um, so there are, that produces your standard Legio Volpa Titan. Um, and I think it's pretty cool. I mean, you just load Google search Legio Volpa, look at images, and there are a lot of really nice paint schemes. And there's a lot of variation in the amounts of purple you can put on these models. I prefer less. But um, I can see an argument for putting in about 50-50. Like, if you go for a good dark purple or a reddish purple, um, a good palette of selections there. Um, now, as I sort of said, there are numerous ways to collect this Litra. Uh You have multiple like options where you can really get into a customised force. So you can basically be called out and say, that's my Legio Volpa. So let's sort of getting into that. Obviously, as I spent a lot of time trying to drum home through the lore section, this is a Legio that changes a lot. So if you're really sitting down to create a characterful Legio Volpa Force, the big question you've got to ask yourself is what part of the heresy does this Legio Volpa Force come from? Are you creating Titans from the early days of the Great Crusade, right around the Schism of Mars? If that was the case, I would be running a lot of Imperial iconography, and maybe even painting Titans that could pass as Loyalists. We'll get to that in a minute. Once you get into the middle of the great of the heresy, you're going to be wanting to run lots of iconography for Horus, lots of banners, dirty kill markings, and a general sign of contempt for the enemy. A bit of trophies and such like wouldn't look out of place by this point. Uh, these titans should be grimming, dripping with hate, but nothing unduardly chaotic. Um, then you move to the latter part of the heresy. And really, the Legio Volpa does give you the opportunity to run wild. As you move into a force that you could be like, this force represents the titans as they arrived on the gates of terror, or these are the forces that left the battlefields of Beta Garmin. You can start really putting in a bit of mutation, a bit of chaotic stuff. Um, obviously, the force that jumps out that everyone brings up is Wade Price's collection from the Warhammer Community Group. Uh, he put together some really wonderfully converted titans, including using many parts from the Corn Age of Sigmar range. I personally think these titans look great, but he also did several other things that he started transitioning away from the bone trim and used a lot more brass on the models to really echo the reflection of the cornate packs that have been signed. And I think that's a great, it's a really easy call out. And it's something you can actually do with the frame of the model. And it's something I haven't really touched on before. But if I was to do a Legio Volpa collection and want to show the difference between a Titan from the start of the heresy and the end of the heresy, I would actually change the actual painting I'm doing on the core skeleton of the model. 
A Legio Vulpa Titan from near the end of the heresy would be showing its subtle shift to an allegiance of corn by marking out areas of brass on its uh, actual metallics. But again, subtling working in parts from the Age of Sigmar range to show cornate markings would also not be wrong. But again, that is marking you out as much like a heresy force. Obviously, you could go a lot the other way as well. As I usually put a moment in, and I'm not going to blow this out to a completely separate section, but I think there is definite space for a loyalist Volpa force. I don't think they play any differently. In fact, they are the same, and that's why I'm not blowing it into a separate section today. Um, a loyalist Legio Volpa force mechanically would work the same way. Um, they aren't going to run around doing anything entirely different. And I think it's just a painting scheme difference. And I think you wouldn't even have to do the rundown renegade view that I've tried to push on people doing the opposite before. I just think they'd just go a little heavier with the Imperial and Iconography. Keep all the eagles on and then just take it the next couple of steps up. Um, as I've sort of said a few times, and I'll say a few times next week episode, lean into Dark Angel's uh, iconography. That sort of angelic, angel of death type aspect would look really good on a Legion of Ulpa Titan with the reds and the bones. Very similar sort of aesthetic. And you get something that looks really neat. I think that really covers the individual collecting and painting. We're going to just sort of move over now to talk about what I would collect if I was putting together my own collection, as in what titans I would put together. So we move to the sort of last segment of the show and talk about what I would do if I was to collect the Legio Volpa. There's a strong part of me that wants to collect the Ferox. Obviously the two Reavers and the three Warhounds have a desire to get in close and really mess it up with the opponents. And it's the way a lot of folk go, and I think it's pretty good. But I'm not so sure. I've sat down and really thought about it, and looked at the rules, and looked at what I want to do. And I've come to a really weird conclusion. I think if I was to collect a Legion of Ulpa Force today, I'd probably look out and collect my pennies and put together a list for a Rupture Battleline Maniple. That's the Jewel Warbringer and Three Reaver Maniple. Why particularly this collection? Well... I think the Warbringer brings a lot to the table for Legio Volpa. They are completely opposite to their rules. They aren't going to get much in the term of benefits. Except for the No Rest for the Vanquished power. Which will allow you to, you know, shoot again if you get an engine kill. More importantly, the entire mana pull traits allows those Reavers to move a lot. They move again when a Warbringer takes out an enemy titan, and they get that one free boosted move every turn anyway. So you've got three Reavers that are going to barrel up the uh, table like crazed berserkers while artillery blasts the enemies up. This is the Legio Volpa. Um, and you don't need to lean in to disruption emitters on all your titans. So you're going to save some points here and there. I build two solid Warbringers, and I think those look really good in Legio Volpa colours, I'm just going to say. Um, they're going to be set out to be long-range fire supports, which goes against my earlier conversation about wanting to be short-range, I know, but I think there's a place for it. And then the three Reavers would be decked out for short-range knife fighting, um, a mixture of um, laser blasters, gatling blasters, and Vulcan megabolters. Maybe one would run a chain fist and all three would come equipped with disruption emitters. They'd barrel up the table and get stuck in. And really make the opponent think twice before advancing up the table. They'd be great for securing objectives and for holding objectives. I also think there is plenty of conversion opportunities. The Warbringer has that sort of space on the top of the um, Titan that lets you build some mini dioramas. And if I was feeling brave enough, I'd probably start looking at 3D printing out some crew. And I can think of doing some pretty cool mounds of skulls and such like that to show the beginnings of a cornate pull. See, if I was to collect them, I would have fallen down pretty heavy to the 
the rabbit hole of going to a pretty cornate force. Um, I collect corn in Age of Sigmar, and the desire to do a cornate Titan Legion is pretty high, to be honest. Um, and I think until we get the rules for a natural corrupted Titan, it's the way you'd have to go. So there's that. Um... So that brings us to the end of part one of my Legio Volpa coverage. Next week we will sit down and have a conversation with a guest about the Legio Volpa, and then I will finish my conclusions at the end of that. So for tonight, I will wish you all a good week. Please rate and review my show, fill out my listener feedback survey, and if you feel so inclined, visit my Ko-Fi account and buy me a cup of coffee. Until then, I will wish you all good fortune. Thank you again for listening to another episode of the God Engine Cast, a podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus game produced by Games Workshop. This show was written, recorded, and edited by Martin Emery. This podcast is completely unofficial and in no way endorsed by Games Workshop Limited. No challenge to any trademarks or copyrights have been intended. All rights are reserved by the respective owners. If you have any questions of the show, please email me at god.engine.cast.gmail.com or reach out to me through Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, I wish you all good fortune.